Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Well, before we do get started, I want to let you know today's program is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners. And you can support the show at support.greatdetectives.net. Well, let's go ahead and take a listen to today's episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. And then afterwards, a Dr. Tam Detective. Here now is The Silver Blue Matter, Part 5. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar speaking, Lieutenant Garcia's office. Johnny, you're the one I was trying to reach. This is Carla Monty. Oh, I was going to phone you later. What's happening? Have they found Eddie yet? Not yet. But the police picked up one of his friends, Mario Santorius. Oh, Mario, I know him. Well, he's been to the apartment lots of times. Was he in on the robbery? Yes, he just made a statement admitting it. And what did he say about my brother? He says Eddie is the one who planned the whole thing. He must be lying. No, Garcia and I are pretty sure he's telling the truth. I'm sorry, Carla. I'm coming down to headquarters, Johnny. There's no use. There's nothing you can do here. At least I can be there when they bring him in or whatever happens. It won't help. You're better off at home. Now, no, please. John. I raised him. Some of the fault must be mine. I can't desert him. I'm going to be there if he needs me. Okay, Carla. <laughs> Tonight, and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Los Angeles, California... To the Home Office, Moto Guarantee Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Silver Blue Matter. Expense account, final page. $100,000 worth of fur coats, silver blue minks, stolen in a warehouse robbery and still missing. A night watchman slugged during the robbery by one of the teenage gang, still lying in a coma, unable to speak. And Red Weller, a man who tried to speak, lay in the county morgue, stabbed to death in a dark alley. But now one of the gang had been arrested, a 17-year-old named Mario Santorius, and he'd finally talked. Sitting in Garcia's office, I read Mario's statement through for the second time. Well, what do you think, Johnny? I think the kid was telling the truth. Eddie Monty scraped up enough money to buy that second-hand panel truck and then talked the other kids into knocking over the warehouse. That ties in with what Eddie's sister said. That he'd kept the truck a secret, hadn't told her about it. And also the fact that Eddie seems to be a born leader type. They even mentioned it in one of his former records of arrest. Yeah, I think we can buy it that Eddie Monte is the leader of the gang. Yeah. All right, they picked their night. They cased the place from Red Weller's lunchroom across the street. 
And as soon as the prowl car passed, they made their move. They got the watchman, Albert Crisman, to open the door by showing him a fake telegram through the window. That's another thing that checks out Mario's story, Johnny. Mario claims he's the one who showed the telegram. That's right. Crisman kept saying, kid with a mark on his arm. And Mario's got a bad scar on his left wrist. That's what I mean. It checks out. Mario didn't know what Crisman had told us. All right, so they got inside, and then, according to Mario's version, it was Eddie Monty who slugged the watchman. Probably true. Then they jumped the other watchman in the dark and started hauling out the furs, loading them into the truck of Eddie's. They knew they had 45 minutes before the prowl car came back through. By that time, they'd finished and split up, Eddie driving the truck away alone and the others disappearing on foot. Yeah, I think that's about the size of it. And I think Mario's telling the truth when he says neither he nor any of the others know where Eddie planned to hide out the truck. And Red Weller, according to Mario, was murdered by another gang member. What was his name? Chewy Morel. Yeah. Well, if that's true, Eddie Monty is at least clean on the murder charge. If it's true. All you can tag him on is robbery and assault on that watchman. I'm kind of glad of it, Johnny. I feel sorry for that sister of his. So do I. She's a good kid. And she's carrying a real load of guilt. Thinks that she's responsible in some way. Oh, she was only 19 herself when their folks died. How could she be expected to hold him in line? And especially in that district. Yeah. She's on her way down here, by the way. Carla Monte? Yeah, yeah. I tried to talk her out of it. Oh, maybe she's as well off hanging around here, though, as she is waiting alone in that apartment. It's a rough deal for her, no matter where she waits. Well, at least we can tell her her brother's not in quite as deep as we can. Excuse me. Yes, sir. Garcia speaking. Good. Well, who's the other one? Yeah, yeah, bring them on in and book them. I'll talk to them later. And now we... What? When? All right. Keep in touch with me. The boys just picked up Chewy Morel and the other two. That leaves us one to go. Yeah, the big one. Eddie Monte. He's even bigger now, Johnny. What do you mean? That watchman, Eddie Slugged, Albert Crisman. What about him? He just died. So it was a different thing we had to tell Carla when she arrived at headquarters. Not that her brother would probably get off on a lesser charge. But instead that an APB was out, that every officer in town had been warned, be on the lookout for Eddie Monty, age 19, armed and dangerous, wanted for murder. Expense account item 15, $12.50, rent on a hired car. One of Garcia's boys was certain that the background appearing in the photograph of Eddie's truck was somewhere in his district, but he couldn't tag the exact spot. So I decided to cruise that area street by street. Carla Monte, Eddie's sister, went along with me. There's an alley off to the right, Johnny. It might be worth a look. Yeah, it runs back toward a lumberyard there. That could be a lumberyard in the background of that photograph. Well, we'll give it a try. This isn't it, Johnny. Sally makes a right angle turn there before it even gets to the lumberyard. Oh, well, we may as well check it on through. It seems to run clear on down to the railroad yards. Oh, please let us find him. If it's the police, he'll fight. And he'll kill someone else. Be killed himself, maybe. It's out of your hands now, Carl. It's got to work itself out in its own way. There's nothing much anybody can do to stop it or change it. I know, Johnny. I keep trying to fool myself. All the time I know. Well, all you can do is hope... Look! That fence ahead of us there. Next to the railroad yards. Yeah, that could be the fence in these pictures. Looks the same. And that storage shed there at the right. That's in one of the shots. Yeah. And that pile of oil drums. This is it, Carla. This is where those films were taken. The truck was parked right at the corner of that shed. Well... It looks as though that off chance paid off. 
I'm scared, Johnny. Now that it's so close, I'm scared. Don't be. By off chance, I meant just finding the place. He may not have come back here since the day those pictures were taken. You don't believe that, and you know it. Look, Carla, that house back at the corner has a phone. There's a wire running in from the pole. Go back there and use it to call Lieutenant Garcia. Give him the location and tell him to hit the radio and have this whole area blocked off. Got it? Yes. Tell him to cover the railroad yard, too. Sew up this whole section tight and tell him to make it fast. Johnny. Yeah. Eddie may be watching us from around here somewhere right this minute. I waited until she'd gone. Then I got out of the car and walked toward the shed and the sagging wooden fence that bordered the railroad yards. It was nearly dark now. The high floodlights had been turned on above the crisscross network of gleaming steel tracks. Shadows play tricks at such a time of evening, and I got sudden movements now and then from the corner of my eyes, but, well, yet nothing really moved. And the only sound was the sound of my own footsteps. I stopped several times and stood watching and listening, but nothing moved. There was only silence. I reached the door of the long wooden shed and found it padlocked. But looking in through a broken window, I could see the lock didn't matter. The shed was empty and long abandoned. Between it and the fence was a drive leading toward the rear. And behind the shed in a loading area, I found Eddie's truck. And in the back of it was $100,000 worth of furs. All right, darling. Huh? Get your hands up. Eddie, you're in a rut. That's the first thing you said to me the last time we met. I ought to killed you there in that apartment. Isn't one killing enough? I don't suppose you know it, but Albert Chrisman died this afternoon. I know. I got a radio in the truck there. That's where you've been hiding out all the time? Look, if I wanted to answer questions, I'd go turn myself in. You may be better off in the long run if you do. Now, get... You here alone? No, no, your sister's with me. Oh, for the luck. What does she want to do? Watch me get it? Why don't you give me that gun, Eddie? It's only a matter of time. You know that. You don't have a chance. Oh, I figure I got a pretty good chance right here in my hand. Chance at what? To break Carla's heart? Smash her into the dirt killer, maybe? Shut up. What more do you want to do to her before you're through? I'm not planning to be through. Oh, that's great. But the police are doing some planning of their own. They gotta find me first. I found you, didn't I? And I oughta kill you right where you're standing. Is that all you gotta think about, Eddie? To kill somebody and go on killing until one of them kills you? Shut up! Let me think. Think about Carla if you want to think about something. Think about the things she's done for you, the years she's worked for you, worried about you. Yeah, that dame was born to worry. Nobody's born to worry. They inherit worries like you were inherited by her. I didn't ask her to do it. Life didn't give her any choice. But it's too late now to talk about that. It's all over, Eddie. This is the wind-up. Come on, I'll give yourself up. You haven't got a chance. Oh, and I would have if I gave myself up. Don't you hand me that stuff. The police have got this whole section surrounded. Carla went to call them 20 minutes ago. If I thought you were trying to hand Johnny. me... It, keep your mouth shut. Eddie, you don't have a chance. Johnny, Lieutenant Garcia's here. Be careful, Eddie's here. You dirty... I hit the dirt and rolled under the truck and came up on the other side with my gun in my hand. I could hear Eddie running away, but I couldn't tell where he was. Johnny, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Eddie went over the fence into the yards. Where are you? Here, the corner of the shed. Come on, let's go after him. He can't get through. I've got men working this way from the other side. Where's Carla? Back there somewhere. Come on, we can get through the fence here. Carla, stay where you are. Don't follow us. There he goes, Johnny. Behind that line of freight cars. All right, come on. He can't get too far that way. There's a train coming. There he goes. He's going to try to beat it. The crazy Eddie. Santa
I don't know, Johnny. There must be better ways to die. Expense account item 16, $300.60. Hotel and miscellaneous in Los Angeles and transportation back to Hartford. Expense account total, $541.25. End of account, end of report. Remarks? Well, I guess Carla made the remarks for me. I don't know, Johnny. Those 80 fur coats, they'll go back into stock now. They'll be sold to women who will wear them to parties and dances and nightclubs. And they'll be happy in them. And they'll never know about Eddie or about me or what happened here tonight. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's intriguing story. Next week, the matter of the medium, well done. And a seance or two that I think you'll like. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Shawnee Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Lucille Meredith, Edgar Barrier, Victor Perrin, Jack Crucian, Tommy Cook, and Richard Crenna. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. Welcome back. This was, I thought, very well put together from a drama standpoint. Um, really, you feel for um, the sister in the story, 
And I think it was a great job of writing. Even when you're dealing with the teenage boy who, uh, the way he acted, his own character made him not really sympathetic. But you cared what happened uh, because of the sister. So just a fantastic uh, performances all around in this uh, particular episode. Very well done. A uh, big note here is the yours truly Johnny Dollar um, uh, first appearance here of Richard Crenna. Uh, who up to this point in his career, his claim to fame was playing the role of Walter Denton on Our Miss Brooks. Um, then, uh, was, uh, a character somewhat, uh, squeaky, uh, voiced, uh, really done a great comic effect. He began on the series in 1948 uh, and continued to 1955 playing this, uh, high school, uh, sophomore, which wasn't, you know, which wasn't bad for radio. He was able to make it work for radio. However, he also appeared in the television version. And um, towards the end of the television version, he was 29 years old, and obviously 29. And uh, he didn't carry off the whole um, guy in his 20s and 30s playing a teenager as well as Dick Ward did in Batman. As I said, this was his first appearance of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. He makes several more appearances in the course of the serial run. And, uh, actually continues to appear on the single episodes. His last appearance on Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, um, is, uh, on October 23rd of 1960. So just before the show, uh, was moved to New York. His acting career would get beyond, uh, our Miss Brooks. He would land the, uh, lead role in The Real McCoys. And, uh, would uh, uh, get uh, get an Emmy nomination in 1959. Uh, and his other role that he is very well known for, uh, Richard Crenna, uh, is the role of Trotman in the uh, first three Rambo movies. Uh, so from old-time radio and Armis Brooks to Rambo. All right. Well, now it's time for Dr. Tim Detective. Uh, I should let you know that while Johnny Dollar will be back on Monday, we'll hear Bob Bailey in our 1100th episode special on Sunday. And I'll tell you more about that. He plays the, a secondary character, but still an important role. Now it's time for The Man from Hiroshima on Dr. Tim Detective. This is Dr. Tim Detective to bring you by transcription the mystery of the man from Hiroshima. Even doctors have to do their spring house cleaning once a year. And on this particular day, my laboratory looked as if a cyclone had hit it. I'd enlisted the aid of Sandy and Jill, my two best friends and helpers, and hired a man to wash the walls and woodwork and do some painting. It wasn't until we were in the middle of the job that I remembered that I'd promised to get those x-ray pictures out by the next day. They were going to be pretty important in a murder trial at which I was testifying, and my good friend the district attorney wanted to go over the pictures with me at the earliest moment. Ordinarily, I would have developed them at once, but an emergency case prevented me. As I was scrambling in the litter of house cleaning, trying to remember where I'd put the film, Mr. Tagawa, the man who was helping us, stopped to light a cigarette. Did you have something, Dr. Tim? Yeah, you wouldn't remember where you put that package of exposed x-ray film, would you? I think I know where it is. Good. 
Uh, Jill, if you'd like to take a few minutes off from your drudgery and help me in the darkroom, the job's yours. Sure. How are we going to develop some more X-ray pictures? If I can find them in this confounded mess. Are these the ones you wanted? Well, let's see, Sandy. No, no, this is a new package. It hasn't been opened. I think this is perhaps what you look for, Doctor. I have, with much carelessness, put my coat on top of it when I start to work. Oh, thanks, Mr. Tagawa. You know, most people wouldn't even know what a package of X-ray film looked like. Before, in Japan, I have done many tasks in scientific laboratory. Then great Scott, man. Surely you don't have to do this sort of work for a living. Heck no, I'll bet Dr. Kim could get you a job. I am very grateful, but I have not been well, and also I have run into much prejudice because of my unfortunate nationality. But you went, Mr. Tagawa. I thought you were an American soldier in the war. That is quite correct, Miss Jill. I was an American intelligence officer and was captured as a prisoner by the Japanese. I served 18 months as prisoner in Japan. You will excuse, please. I have about finished cleaning wall and must buy paint to start on woodwork tomorrow, yes? Taking Jill with me, I waved goodbye to Mr. Tagawa and disappeared into the darkroom not even realizing that clutched in my hand, in a thin cardboard box, was the beginning of one of the most baffling mysteries in my career as doctor and detective. About an hour later, Sandy, Jill, and I stood dumbfounded before a rack on my laboratory bench upon which were spread the developed X-ray pictures. But there's absolutely nothing wrong. What do you suppose could have happened? I'll be dark conned. They look as if they'd been light-struck, I guess. Well, I must have been careless, or else the X-ray machine is out of order. But it couldn't be, Dr. Tim. Don't you remember those pictures we took yesterday? After these, they were okay. I sure if I'd forgotten. They were. That's a mystery to me. What'll you have to do? Take them over, I guess. I'd better get the DA on the phone. Boy, that sure beats everything. By working most of the night, I managed to get the x-rays taken again, and I developed about half of them before I had to give up and go to sleep. I was awakened early the next morning by the arrival of Mr. Tagawa, who started laying out his painting equipment, and by the entrance of Sandy and Jill ready to start the day's work. I dressed quickly and joined them. What about the new set of pictures? Were they okay? Well, they were, Jill, at least the ones I developed last night. I wonder what could have happened. It beats me, Sandy. We'll soon know about the rest. Well, where did I put them? Right those? here, Dr. Tim. Oh. Shall I take them to the dark room? No, just hang on them a minute. I, I think... Like color for wood, Doctor? Oh. Yeah, yeah, it looks okay to me. I make darker or lighter you like. Oh, I like that, Mr. Tagawa. Looks well to me. Here, let me hold wood sample against light color. You give me a box of film a minute, yes? Very nice, I think. He held the box against his chest and stepped back for us to see. Well... When I walked out of the dark room a short time later, I tried to keep from swearing where the kids could hear me. The last half of those pictures were fogged again, completely ruined as if by light. As Sandy, Jill, and I sat over breakfast at the drugstore in the corner, we were a puzzling crew. You don't suppose I could have done something wrong, do you? No, of course not. I was working in there with you all the time, Jill. Well, you didn't expose them to any light, and you checked the x-ray machine. Is there anything besides light that was spoiled? No. Well, that is nothing that could possibly be in the laboratory. What do you mean? Of course, film can be spoiled if it's exposed to radium, but I've never had radium or any radium product in the lab. I don't get it. About radium, I mean. Well, radium gives off light, Sandy. Invisible light. 
I mean, it's invisible to us, but it's there all right. So do other atomic products, things they're making at places like Oak Ridge. The atom bomb factory? It's much more than that, Jill. Atomic scientists are working for medicine, too. You know how radium is used in stopping the growth of cancer in the human body? Uh Sure. Well, certain other chemicals are made radioactive, too. They're used just like tracer bullets from a machine gun. How? Well, take iodine, for instance. There's a certain important gland in the body that's called the thyroid gland. Well, iodine taken into the body sooner or later goes to the thyroid. So doctors these days are using iodine, which has been made radioactive, to study what actually happens to it in the body, especially in the thyroid gland. Oh, I guess. Because radium products give off that invisible light while you can take X-ray pictures of the iodine at work in the thyroid. Exactly. Doesn't radium kill you? Too much does, Sandy. And too much means a piece less than the size of a grain of salt. But doctors use it for brief periods, just like X-ray, to cure people. Now, let's get back to those spoiled pictures. Hey, you sure you haven't got some of that stuff around in the lab? And you've forgotten about it? Now, look, kids. Well, it was a thought. And it was a thought. Not that I'd had any radioactive material around, for it's the most dangerous stuff in the world when handled carelessly. But I remembered a case or two I'd read about. Not so long ago, thousands of rolls of unused film had been spoiled because the containers they came in had been made of contaminated material. That's a word scientists use to describe any substance which has been exposed to the deadly rays of atomic products. And there was the famous case years ago of the workers in a clock factory which manufactured those clocks and watches with luminous dials that glow in the dark because they moistened the tiny brushes with their tongues. Some of them died of radium poisoning. So it wasn't so far-fetched after all that something in that laboratory might be radioactive enough to spoil the X-ray film. Meantime, I had to take half those pictures over again. I sighed and started back to work. Mr. Tagawa had gone when we got back, as it was Saturday, and he worked only half a day. Wearily, I called my patient back and retook the pictures. And this time, they were all right, as sharp and clean and unfogged as you could ask for. Here was a mystery with a vengeance. It was Jill who made a bright suggestion as we finished. Dr. Tim, isn't there some way you can tell us something's here that shouldn't be? Like radium or something? Well, yes, there is. We could use a Geiger counter. Sure, I've read about those. They use them in the atom bomb test. They go beep, beep, beep if there's anything around that's radioactive. Well, you said about the paint in the clock factory. Maybe Mr. Tagawa's paint got radioactive. Uh, it's not likely, but... No, no, that wouldn't work. Because those first films were spelled before he even bought the paint. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, why don't we get one of those Geiger counters? And... Sandy, I believe you have the answer. I'll call the physics laboratory out at the university and we'll go to work. I don't think we'll find anything, but it's worth a try. On Sunday, we spent three hours going over the laboratory for traces of radiation. There were none, except when I showed Sandy and Jill how the Geiger counter worked. I turned on my X-ray and pointed the machine toward it. The counter began to click away like mad. Well, I'll be darned. Oh, I get it. The faster the clicks, the more dangerous the radi- radiation, huh? Yes. But there's not a trace of anything in the whole room that could have caused those films to be exposed. Just a bad batch, I guess. Looks that way. Unless... Oh, but that's silly. What's that, Jim? Well, 
Well, you said people could be radioactive, too. Wouldn't they spoil the film? If... My jaw dropped open as I had a sudden thought as clear as day. Now, hold on, I told myself. Let me think. My handyman and painter had given me the box with the first foiled films himself, after his coat had lain on them. Yes, I was right. When I took the pictures over, I'd developed half of them that night. No one but myself had touched them. But the next morning, the paint sample, Takawa had held a strip of wood in the box that held the remainder of the film against his clothes. But the idea was fantastic. I was jolted out of my reverie by someone at the door. I'll tell you who it is. I hope I'm not bothered. I'd like to see if paint dry okay. Mr. Tagawa, would you help us with an experiment? I glad give assistance. Sandy, will you hand me the Geiger counter? Thanks. Ah, that is equipment I'm much familiar with. I'm glad of that, Mr. Tagawa. Because if you do have radium poisoning, I won't have to tell you what it means. Gosh. You don't mean your wife, Mr. Tagawa? Not Mr. Tagawa. His clothes. But if his clothes are contaminated, there's a chance that he, too, might... I... I'm much afraid of that, Doctor. For a long time, I not feel well. Look pale. How did you guess? The film you held against your coat. It was spoiled. I sigh, please. Good Lord, man. You've nothing to be sorry for. I only wish that we, we doctors, could... I understand. No cure. That's what I work on in Japan. I see what happened to so many. It's very funny that I, too, should he have... Quiet. What is he saying? When I prisoner, Miss Jill, I take to Hiroshima. Hiroshima? Holy gee, when the bomb was dropped? No, I said after. The Japanese, they know I am laboratory technician. I still a prisoner, but I work. I work with all doctors to find out what have happened, what can be done for all those people. Naturally, you handled a lot of contaminated material. Yes, and I think we're going to die. How, how you know this, Doctor? Well, it takes months, sometimes years, for the effects to show up. But your clothes gave me the clue. You wore them at that time? Yes, these old clothes been in my footlocker, you know. The army trunk. Since I come back from Japan, till a few days ago, I'm very sad that something so good, the little tracer bullets of you doctors, the radium for the cancer, the marvelous picture of the inside of the body, I'm very sad it also be so bad. I mean, the bomb. Well, gee, it won't always be that way. You test me now, doctor? Yes. Breathe out now. Silently, I held the counter so he breathed upon it. There were a few faint clicks. Oh, Dr. Kim, can't you do something for Mr. Tagawa? Anything? Oh, it isn't fair. No, Jill, not a thing as yet. By the time you and Sandy are grown up, maybe. That's up to you, what you want to do with this power we own. Good or evil. Yes, you'll be the ones. I think I'll go now, yes. This is great shock. Although I suspect before. I'll take the paint tomorrow. Many happy landings.
And so we close my casebook on the mystery of the man from Hiroshima. The last program of this first series. This is Dr. Tim, detective, saying so long for now. The series was written and directed by Jack Weir Lewis and produced and transcribed by the Monarch Program Library, Incorporated. Welcome back. Well, between um, the end of the Silver Blue Matter and what happened to poor Mr. Tagawa, I'm not doing so well on the happy endings fronts. I kept trying to figure out what sort of murder case Dr. Tim could be involved in that would involve x-raying a patient uh, repeatedly. Um, it probably would have made more sense as a civil case. But to be fair, kids, kid readers didn't overthink it. Uh, and I think, of course, there was the obvious much, uh, larger message. The questions raised about how, um, nuclear, uh, energy would be used. Uh, this episode, uh, released in 1948, very close to the dropping of the bomb. Were these questions really on people's minds? A lot of radio programs, a lot of uh, radio miniseries made uh, dealing with uh, what it would mean uh, to live in the atomic age. But that uh, does conclude Dr. Tim Detective. I don't know if there was ever a second series made, but I don't believe so. Um, and that's all we have for this current series. Uh, we will actually resume the Carter Brown mysteries. Carter Brown will return on next Friday. And uh, Monday, uh, we'll be bringing you yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And Saturday, I'll let you know a little bit about our 1100th episode special, the star of the show. And uh, be sure and listen to that on Sunday. Tomorrow, it's the lineup. Send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.